trigger warning. The following podcast contains references to gender-based violence, which may be distressing for some listeners. We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness today on The Meaningful Life is Susie Carlick, who is the founder of Pretty Deadly Self-Defense. She's a ninjutsu martial arts instructor, a certified self-defense instructor, and also a violent crime survivor. You'll recognize her voice if you're a regular listener to the podcast because she does my announcements. She also hosts her own podcast, which is also called Pretty Deadly. Now, as you will hear, the violent crime was really violent, but out of this dark experience has come something extraordinary. And my suspicion is she will have something interesting to say about what makes life meaningful. Susie, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Was becoming a martial arts instructor part of your life plan? No, no, not that I recall. Now I've been in it for so long, I don't actually remember what my life plan was before. But I'm pretty sure that as a little girl, that wasn't on the list of things to do. So give me a picture of your life before this incident happened, so that we sort of get a sense of who you are and what was happening in your life. I am a storyteller. And that's something that has always been true from the time I was a very little girl and is still true today. When I was younger, I wanted to simply just write short stories and publish short stories, which I was doing. I think anyone who knows anything about short form literature and fiction knows that you're never going to make a living at that. That was okay until I discovered screenwriting. And I really liked it. It was a really good transition for me between short story writing and screenwriting. I found a lot of similarities. So I had moved to Los Angeles to make my way as a screenwriter. At that time, I was 32. So I was also just at that age. I'd come out of a long-term relationship, had gone through my processes of learning from it and healing from it, and was ready to also move on to that next stage in life. You know, I was getting ready to meet someone and enter a much more serious and committed relationship, was thinking about having a family and start planning out my future in that way, getting married, having children, having a career, hopefully finding someone that had a complementary career is everyone's dream, I think. That was basically the whole plan. And one day the whole plan was turned upside down. Exactly. Tell me what happened. At the time, I was trying to make a living as a screenwriter, but I was also working for lawyers. So I had a day job. And I came home from my day job one evening to find my back door open in my apartment. I lived on the ground floor in the back of a building. At first, I thought I had left the door open because I was late for work that morning because I'm late for work every morning. Now I work for myself and I'm still late for work. So I kind of thought it was just me. But when I entered the apartment, it was obvious that somebody had been in there and had been rooting around stuff in closets and drawers. And at first I thought, I don't know really what this is all about. Is it somebody just being creepy or what? Because nothing was stolen. 
a camera that I had lent a friend a month or so earlier was out on my desk where normally it was hidden away in a closet. And I thought maybe this friend had returned it. Maybe I was wrong and he hadn't returned it. So maybe he did and found my back door open and let himself in. And so I called him and said, did you drop my camera off today? And he said, no, I gave it back to you a month ago. And I explained to him what had happened. And he said, you've been broken into and you need to call the police. And he said, tell the police that some money was stolen. Otherwise, they're never going to come. This is Los Angeles. It's the LAPD, Hollywood. It can be very glamorous and wonderful like the movies, but it's also a city. And there are basically all the urban elements that exist in every other city also exist in Hollywood in Los Angeles. So I did call the police. They showed up a few hours later. (laughs) It wasn't urgent. No blue light. (laughs) No. So we walked through the apartment. There was a heat wave at the time. And they said, you know, nothing was stolen. Your bathroom hasn't been gone through looking for potential drugs. You've got a computer and a TV and lots of things that could be stolen and then resold. We think it's just kids bored. School is out. It's really hot. They dared each other to break into your apartment. Maybe they heard you drive up when you came home and they ran out the back door. And that sounded like a totally reasonable explanation. They left a report on my kitchen table. They left. I went out to meet a friend for a drink. And when kind of on my way, actually, I was thinking, well, what's the likelihood of somebody actually trying to kill me? You know, I've never been broken into before, so that I can check that off the list. And to me, there were always only three really horrible things that could happen, that you're, you're robbed, you're raped, and you're murdered. And I figured, well, you know, what, and what's the likelihood of being mur- murdered? Pretty slim, I thought. So I had a drink with my friend. I wasn't really feeling particularly celebratory. So I went home and went to sleep. But it was a heat wave. And I did open one of the windows. My windows in that apartment had screens. The screens were only detachable from the inside. So I felt fairly safe doing that. I did fall asleep with the light on because I felt a little nervous. And I woke up a few hours later and looked at the clock. And it was 4.17 in the morning. And I thought, well, if no one's broken into my house and tried to kill me by now, I guess I'm okay. Click, I turn off the light. (laughs) And I laugh about it now. So I went back to sleep, or I tried to go back to sleep, but I also really had to go to the bathroom. And then I had that little argument that we all have with ourselves in the middle of the night. You should go to the bathroom. I don't want to go to the bathroom. No, you should really go to the bathroom. That became very compelling to the point where I could no longer ignore my own body saying, you've got to get up out of bed and go to the bathroom. So I did. I was very groggy. I was naked because it was a heat wave and I slept naked at that time. And there standing in the doorway of my bathroom was a man (gasps) who was also naked. I'm going to use a bad word, bloody hell. Bloody hell. That's not what I thought, but... (laughs) That's a nice, nice, polite English version. (laughs) Imagine something much stronger. (laughs) Actually, what I thought at first was it was the guy, my friend that I had called earlier. Or very first, I thought it was an old boyfriend and thought, why am I still dreaming about this guy? Then I thought, oh, it's my friend who's come to return the camera. And then I thought, that doesn't look anything like my friend. Also, this person is naked. These thoughts happened really, really fast. I mean, in milliseconds, I imagine. And then I realized, oh, stranger danger. It was literally the thought that I had. And then he attacked. How did he attack you? The hallway was fairly narrow. So he jumped out and pushed me against the wall behind me. 
when I go into shock, which I had gone into, I lose my sense of hearing, which apparently there's a German word for that I can never remember. But apparently, like Germans experience this. That's what I read once in one of those weird, like, look at all these funny German word things. Anyway, I lost my hearing. I didn't know that I was screaming. He was trying to cover my mouth. I honestly don't remember, not because it was 20 years ago, but I've never been able to remember every single second. There's little gaps here and there. And at some point, as I was sort of waking up and realizing what was happening to me, I also realized this is for my life. This man is here to kill me. How did you know that? It was his intention. You feel other people's intention. It's kind of like, how can I explain it? You can feel when a stranger is staring at you. If you're sitting in a cafe and you feel like somebody sitting behind you is staring at you, right? I mean, hopefully not plotting your murder. You can feel those intentions from people. You can feel when somebody is about to tell you something really nice or something really horrible. And you can feel the violence, can't you? You can feel the violence, yeah. And you can, you just know there was no question in my mind. What do you do in a situation like that? I don't know. I mean, I didn't know. Yep. (laughs) You might now. We'll come to that later. (laughs) You're naked. It's the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. There's a man that wants to kill you in your bathroom. There's a man who's trying to kill me, actually. I thought, don't go to the floor. If he gets you to the floor, it's it's over. Just don't allow yourself to get to the floor. And this is the part where I have the biggest gap. There's always been, I don't know how long it was, maybe 10 seconds or something, that I just have a blank space on. I do remember being thrown against the doorframe to my bedroom, hitting it really hard and landing on the floor. And then he started to hit me and beat me. He grabbed my hair and kind of was like holding my head by my hair with one hand and punching me with the other hand. Somehow my body knew to relax with those punches. I I could see them coming. The punches whipped my head around so fiercely that the final one tore. It whipped my head around so fast that it tore my hair out. So he ended up holding a clump of my hair, but I was suddenly free. So I was able to start moving away. I was crawling on my belly, trying to get to the kitchen, thinking if I can just get to the knives. Now I'm really glad that that didn't happen because I didn't know how to use a knife to defend myself at that time. And there's always the danger that he could grab the knife as well. My guess is he knew exactly how to use a knife right, to hurt someone. I did not. So yes, now I'm very relieved that I didn't get there, but that was my intention. And I think that would be probably a lot of people's intention, you know, that that's where the weapons are, knives, kitchen knives. So I was on my belly crawling, trying to get to the kitchen when he stopped me and threw me over onto my back and stood over me and was about to do something. At this point, I was, this sounds like a weird thing to say, but at a certain point, you sort of, the situation sort of normalizes in a way. Like it's been going on for a while and you're like, okay, I'm in the middle of getting beaten and somebody's trying to kill me and I finally can comprehend what's happening. Right. And I remember, I do remember saying to him, why are you doing this? The entire time that he was attacking me, both when I was on my feet as well as when I was on the ground, he kept his face averted because I was trying to get a good look at his face, but he kept his face averted. He would never look at me directly and he kept turning his face away. He was standing over me getting ready to do something when suddenly he stopped and stood up straight 
as though he was listening and then leapt over my head and ran into the living room and pulled open my front door that I never used. So it was always double locked and chained. And as I saw him heading in that direction, I was like, no, 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 go to the kitchen door. That one's always open. But he pulled it open. He had clearly prepared that as his escape beforehand and ran out, shut the door behind him. And that was that. But his sudden stopping was just as freaky as suddenly attacking. So it took me a few seconds to kind of understand what was going on. And I do remember being very, very afraid that he was going to come back. Yes, I would be afraid he'd come back too. Yeah, but I was too, I was too frightened to go to the door and lock it just in case he was on the other side. I didn't want him to bust open and, and hit me with the door. I'd already been hit, you know, with the door frame. So I think, I don't know how much time passed before I kind of became evident to me that he wasn't coming back. And I did call the police and sort of screamed into the phone. All my hearing came rushing back. Now in the movies, the police come and they're there in 30 seconds <laughs> Oh my time. God, no. No, they asked if he had a weapon and I said, I think he had a knife. When he was attacking me, he didn't have a knife in his hand. Behind him, when he first attacked me, I could see that there was something on my bathroom counter I didn't know what it was, but I know it wasn't mine because I hadn't left anything there the night before. And I'm an almost an obsessively, compulsively neat person. So I never, ever leave things. <laughs> so I knew that that wasn't mine. I don't know what it was, but I do remember seeing it and thinking, I don't know what that is, but that doesn't belong there. And that could be dangerous. He grabbed that before I ran out. So that went with him. That was never found again. So when I called the police, they said, did he have a weapon? And I said, I think he had a knife, which I guess isn't as important as if he had a gun or something. I know a few of the other neighbors also called the police at the same time. They could hear me being hit. They could hear his fist on my face. They could certainly hear me screaming. So several people called the police, but it still took them 45 minutes to show up. So by the time they showed up, I was like, that guy's having a cheeseburger and watching a movie at this point. I mean, why did you even bother to come? And all the way through those 45 minutes, I would be frightened that he was coming back. The second I got off the phone with the police and what I realized later what made him stop is I hung up with the police and there was a pounding on my door. And at first I thought, oh, my God, it's him. Of course, there was a small part of me thinking, but why would he be knocking now? <laughs> like, <laughs> suddenly, why does he have manners? It was my neighbors. And I did, you know, I said, who's there? And they said, it's, it's us. It's your neighbors. And I opened the door. And my building managers at that time were this couple. And the wife of the couple was a very solid woman. I was so happy to see her. And she pulled me right into a big, giant bear hug and just held on to me. Oh, how wonderful. So I was surrounded by all my neighbors until the police showed up. And then my neighbors kind of hovered around a bit while the police also hovered around and were totally useless. Really, totally useless. Because the police actually thought that it was an ex-lover of yours or something and was completely downplaying it. Yeah, exactly. I told them what had happened. I mentioned that I was naked, that he was naked. And they said, oh, I see. You went out, you picked up some guy at the bar, you promised to have sex with him, and then you changed your mind and he got angry. And I said, no, I did not pick up anybody at the bar. And I've never seen this person before in my life. They're a stranger to me. And they said, oh, come on. We know. It's just a boyfriend. That that's So they wouldn't believe me at all until they saw the police report from earlier that day, or actually the day before at that point, technically, on the kitchen table. And they said, what is this? And I said, I'd been broken into the day before. And one cop turned to the other and said, this changes everything. Call the station. When you are a victim in this situation and anybody at all finally takes you seriously, 
your first thought is basically, yeah, finally, you're doing your job, you morons. I might not have thought morons, but nonetheless, I thought, finally, you're doing your job. It didn't strike me then that that was kind of a weird response. They did call the station, and then they told me that a detective would be coming first thing in the morning, along with forensics, to start sweeping for fingerprints. And then the whole thing kind of shifted tone and gear, and suddenly they were supportive and friendly. And I mean, how terrible to be attacked in your own house, and the police finally arrive, and they don't take you seriously. They almost, I'm just sitting here thinking that might almost be as bad as the actual experience itself. Or am I getting it entirely wrong? No, you're not at all. No, it was horrible to have that. It was frustrating. There was a clump of my hair on the floor from when it had been pulled out from being hit that I had to tell them to pick up and then had to give them a baggie because they didn't have any with them. It was ter- I was like, do you want me to go arrest the guy for you? I mean, are you going to do your jobs? If anyone's wondering about the unrest in the United States regarding the police right now, I'm a white woman. People do not look at me and think that I come from anything other than the background that I came from, which is a middle-class, privileged, white background. And the police are like this with every... They're much, much, much worse with people of color. But this is kind of the bar, you know, and the bar is really low. That's frightening, really, isn't it? Yeah, it was distressing and it was unbelievably frustrating. I am glad that they did take it seriously and they did end up calling the station and they told me a few days later that the case was now a top priority case. And that certainly made me feel better that I was being taken more seriously. Now, when you were telling me all about this, even though it's 20 years later and I'm by no means the first person you've told this story to, there was still pain in your eyes. This is something that really stays with you. I think I can see sitting here in this room that the pain is still there in somewhere. Am am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pain is a complex pain at this point. Now, 20 years later, there is a part of me that can, if I want to, and I don't often want to, I can go back and I can relive every single one of those seconds as though it's happening again. I don't think I'm ever going to really forget how that feels. But now the pain of that situation, of the cops not believing me, of the events that happened afterwards, of the way that this all affected my life, that has stayed with me forever. That was maybe 15 minutes maximum out of that man's life. And it has completely changed your life. It completely changed mine. When we go through trauma therapy, what we're often trying to do is get back to the life that we had before. And that's what I was trying to do, not understanding that that life is gone. It's gone. And the person that was there in many ways is also gone. Let's start to try and understand how you have processed this, because you did, from what I understand, two things. The first one is you really wanted to understand what your body did during those 15 minutes. Right. Why was that so important to you? I felt that I had let myself down. I thought I would do a better job of defending myself. I had no self-defense training. I had no martial arts training at that time. But I felt like, you know, I thought I was a fighter. I thought I was someone who would fight back, who would not just respond in the way that I responded. 
So I wanted to understand, like, why did I respond that way? And what exactly did my body do? And why did it do those things? My body did do a couple of things that I thought were really weird. And it took me literally 20 years to figure out what that was. And what was it? One of the things that my body did was I started to shake, but not like the shivering you do when you're really cold. Not exactly spasms, but really deep muscle shakes. For the longest time, I thought that was maybe some kind of response that was like, oh, it'll make it hard for him to grab onto me. And it wasn't until really a couple of years ago, actually working with a pretty deadly group. And one of the members was a cognitive behavioral therapist who also works in trauma, but she was learning self-defense for me at the time. And I happened to mention this and she said, oh, that was your muscles warming up. And I was like, oh my God, of course, you're right. Of course, that's exactly what that was. But I didn't know that. What about getting up in the middle of the night and going to the toilet? Do you think your body was in some way sort of aware on a some kind of sixth sense that you need to get out of that bed? Because I think you'd have been even more vulnerable in the bed, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I Absolutely. I think had I woken up and thought, oh, there's a man in my house, who knows? I mean, maybe I would have stayed in the bed or tried to hide in the closet or something. But yeah, again, for many years, I thought if I let myself fall asleep in too deep of a sleep, I'll never hear it if somebody breaks in. I didn't hear that guy. Of course, I moved out of that apartment right away um, and never went back. <laughs> Other people came and packed me up and, and moved me out, which was really lovely of them. I was in another apartment and I had probably the most obnoxious roommate I've ever had in my life. We had these back stairs that shared a wall with my bedroom wall and I had told him, approximately 5,000 times to please don't ever use those stairs in the middle of the night. So of course he did like every time. And for the first month or so, I couldn't figure out why I was always waking up at a certain time. And one night I just went to sleep and had a very light sleep. So I actually heard him coming up the stairs and I realized, oh, I, I heard that guy. I heard that guy come into the apartment. I always thought I didn't, but I did because you do hear anomalous noises and that's what can wake you up. After that, I thought, yeah, but if I didn't, hadn't had to go to the bathroom, what would I have done? And now I realize from my own research and my work that my body and my self-defense system understood that there was danger and that my best chance of survival was to be on my feet. But to send that information to myself as you're in danger, get on your feet, wouldn't be as effective as this very compelling you know, some people might say, you know, it's the voice of God or it's some outer being or deep spirit or your higher self or whatever. I don't know. What I do know is that that was my self-defense system saying, get on your feet because this is the only way you're going to survive. Am I sort of hearing on some level that you felt your body let you down in those 15 minutes before you did the research and understood? Exactly. Yeah. In the beginning, I did. In the beginning, I thought it would just come out. I would just defend myself. I would just fight. I'm a strong woman. I've got a tough character. I've lived in New York City. All the things that we all tell ourselves, really. And I thought, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what to do. I didn't do anything. Did you blame yourself in some way? Because You've told me you're a storyteller, and that's obvious. And we tell ourselves stories all the time, often in a very negative way, to try and make ourselves more in control of the world. Yeah. What sort of stories were you telling yourself that yes. you should have done or that... Ah, that I should have done. The stories I was telling myself, for me, were I should have been more social and outgoing and had more friends. I should have been dating and not been so picky with the men that I had gone on one or two dates with. 
again, 20 years later, no regrets. But at that time, that's what I was thinking. I shouldn't have kept such a regular schedule. I shouldn't have taken an apartment on the ground floor in the back of a building. I will say that when I first looked at this apartment, every single cell of my body said, do not take this apartment. Something really bad is going to happen here. The other part of my brain, which really loves interior decoration, said, but it has wooden floors. <laughs> and that was really hard to find in Los Angeles at the time. Everybody had wall-to-wall carpet. It was gross. So that part overrode my intuition. That actually, I've always kind of really been bummed about <laughs> that I valued those hardwood floors over my own intuition. That'll never happen again, I think. I can't really guarantee, but... Nonetheless, it was those kinds of things. The way that I beat myself up and the stories I told myself were really, I should have been a better person. I should have been more engaged in the world. I should have been all the things that people say you should be. The night before I was attacked, there were other young women in my building, and one of them had told me a few days before I was attacked that there was some guy creeping around and we should all be on alert. They had told the landlord, I think two of the girls had called the police before. We all thought it was a peeping Tom. And I thought at the time, you know, well, I'm from New York. Peeping Tom's not going to scare me. The night before I was attacked, I was in bed reading and the windows were open and I could hear heavy breathing outside my window. And I thought at the time what most women think. I beat myself up about this for a really long time. I thought, I'm not going to show that guy I'm afraid. That's what he wants. He wants me to call the police. He wants me to yell at him. He wants me to respond in some way. I'm not going to allow him to have that kind of power over me. So I'm just going to ignore him. The second thing you did, as well as trying to understand, was you went to learn about martial arts. How long did it take you to get there? I don't really quite remember the sequence of events, but at some point after I was attacked and I was thinking about why did I respond this way, I did notice that I couldn't control what my body did. I couldn't make decisions. I couldn't choose targets. I simply reacted and responded. And so I thought, well, if that's the case, if I can't control things, if I can't make decisions, if I can't choose targets, then I want to train my body to be as devastating naturally with every natural movement as it can possibly be in case anything like this ever happens again. To me, that only meant martial arts. Self-defense wasn't in the picture. It was go straight to the most severe martial art you can find. Not severe in the sense of sweating and punching stuff, but the most devastating one I could find. I joined my dojo in early September 2000, and I had been attacked in July. So Pretty quickly then? Pretty quickly, yeah. What was it like walking through the door? You know, the teacher, my teacher at the time, suggested that I watch a class first. I observe something. And I did. There were some new students, some white belts, and he wasn't teaching that day. It was Hollywood. And I had serendipitously just seen him, or coincidentally maybe, on the news doing some like, this man teaches the police department martial arts or whatever. And I thought, oh, that's the guy I'm going to learn from. But here I am in this class, and he's not teaching. And I was like, ah, Hollywood. You know, it's always for the show. But the guy that was teaching, a guy named Brian Simmons, who's still a teacher, just happened to be working with one of the white belts right near me. And he said something to her about the movements that she was learning. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I wrote it down, actually. And I, I still use this information and I give it to my students. Right after that, then my teacher did come out and said, I'm, I'm not teaching tonight because an old friend is in town and I'm going to dinner. Normally I teach 
he sat with me and he said, something happened to you, didn't it? And I said, yes. And he said, you don't have to talk about it, but you're safe here. This is a safe place for you. How wonderful. It was great. And yeah, he was just kind. It was a good place to be. It wasn't at all frightening, which is remarkable because in ninjutsu, everybody trains in black uniforms and it's always a bunch of guys and they're always grunting around and hitting each other. And I think in another circumstance, I might be intimidated, but that was really the perfect welcome. Did it change your life? Did it change my life? Uh, Yes and no. Right. So let's have the yes first, then we'll have the no. (laughs) Well, the event changed my life. So I was in martial arts not long after I was attacked, and at the same time I was in therapy. I'm so glad I did these two things together, because martial arts was able to give me things that I wasn't able to get out of therapy, to learn how to trust my body, to learn a deeper level of how my self-defense system works, how body dynamics work, to understand that I did have all these tools to provide me with a safe space to go back and visit that moment again and again, and really understand what I actually did do to defend myself. My understanding was, because you've got to a very high level in this, that you threw yourself into this field. Yeah, absolutely. I I have a picture of you being there basically all your free time. Yeah, well, not all my free time, but a lot. I was at the dojo about five days a week for six years, or eight years, eight years. Yeah, I was there all the time. You had a bed there and a kitchen, didn't you? Kind of. I mean, it's. I wasn't the only one, so I think it didn't feel for me like it was that extreme because we were all pretty dedicated at that time. But I think it's wonderful to find something that you can be dedicated to. Yes, but I wouldn't put it in those terms, actually. How would you put it? Ninjutsu, for me, answered something inside of me. It was also a place and a structure for a lot of things that I already believed in. Some things that I had sort of suspicions about, not in a negative way, but like, I I think my body does this. And ninjutsu provided a framework and a structure that could confirm that and help me understand it deeper. So what were the beliefs that you've got from this martial art? Things like intention, my own intention, other people's intention, being able to read that. Reading your own intention. Tell me about that. Well, reading your own intention in the sense of cognitive behavior, of course. Why am I doing this? What do I really want? Why am I not doing this? What do I really want? But also having a clear intention for things, you know, and and playing with that. Those are exercises that we used to do in the school. Having an intention to cut someone with a sword, not real swords, not real cuts, but having that intention, being able to move on that. Learning to trust yourself and your body in ways that I never had considered before. I never considered myself athletic, although I actually was, and I hadn't looked at myself in that way. So ninjutsu also helped me. It kind of gave me more of a 360 perspective on things. Did it change your relationship with your body? Yes. I was always really sensitive to what my body was doing even before ninjutsu, but it made me appreciate it on a much deeper level. Because a lot of women have a very love-hate relationship with their body. Do you think that as you teach self-defense, you're giving them something as well as self-defense, some change to their relationship with their body? I hope so. I can't say for sure, yes or no, but I hope I do. 
I'm hoping that what I'm giving to the people that participate in the Pretty Deadly program is a deeper understanding of how much their body actually really cares for them. We do really stupid things. You know, I really love candy. It's so bad. And I offered you something sweet the minute you arrived here, didn't I? Which I really wanted. And you said no. No, I said no, because I had already had a piece of candy and a piece of cake today. But candy especially, I love candy. It's completely rotted out my teeth. It's terrible. That's a stupid thing to put into my body. I know that. But there's so many things my body does to keep me safe, to keep me healthy, to keep me going. And it's so beautiful. And I think we tend to look at our bodies in just an aesthetic way and we forget the beautiful function of it. You know, I'm I'm 61, mm -hmm. so I have to have a different relationship to my body. And it has to be, I think, less about what it looks like and much more about what it can do. I've never done self-defense, but I would imagine that it gives you a better relationship with your body. I feel it does. I think it's also participating and practicing and teaching martial arts over the past 20 years and developing this program and working on it. What I've discovered for myself is how much I love to learn through my body as opposed to through my brain. Taking in data and information is really perfect in some contexts, but to allow my body to teach me and just remove the overthinking and really trust my body to lead me someplace or to some new discovery has been a great thing for me to learn confidence through movement and self-trust through body dynamics and awareness and presence. And you developed your system by teaching your own mother self-defense. What was that like? Well, my mom was really not athletic, like really not athletic. It's sometimes remarkable that she actually made it through life without breaking major bones. She was fairly clumsy at times. She was super stubborn. And we had a pretty typical relationship for women of her generation and women of my generation, meaning it was often combative. I knew she would resist learning anything from her own daughter, even though she's the one who asked me to teach her self-defense. So I had to be really clever in the way that I approached it. I wanted her to learn. She was not feeling safe walking to her local coffee shop to meet up with her friends. And, you know, she was in her late 60s. She was nearing the, we didn't know at that time she was nearing the end of her life. But I didn't want my mom to live a smaller life in these years that she was supposed to be enjoying life. So I had to get really clever. I knew that if I presented her with the Japanese names of the techniques, she would resist. Basically, if I just taught her in the way I was taught, she would resist the whole thing. So I was looking for movements that she did naturally so she wouldn't feel like, oh, I'm never going to be able to do this. Give me an example. Like putting her hair behind her ears. All women do this. We put our hair behind our ears, which is also an elbow strike. Ah, clever. Give me another one. Um, cup of coffee. My mother was, a and I've inherited this from her, was a dedicated coffee lover. And also she really loved mugs. If you hold a mug by its handle and you hand it to someone, that's the same thing as a straight punch. Ah. So that's what we call it in Pretty Deadly. You give someone a cup of coffee. This sounds really accessible. I mean, I have to say, I don't really feel that I need it because I'm, I'm very privileged. I'm a man. I don't mm -hmm. feel fear as I walk down the street. But if I went to one of these classes, I think I'd feel intimidated. But I'm not feeling intimidated by give a cup of coffee and put your hair behind your ears. Right. But you raise a good point because a lot of people, men and women, feel very intimidated by martial 
martial arts, and even specifically by self-defense. Self-defense traditionally is taught from a place of fear. All these horrible things are going to happen. You should be prepared for it. It uses violent and aggressive terms that most people just frankly do not want to ingest. And who wants to go do that after a long day at work? Right. Like I've just finished a day of fighting with my boss and dealing with clients. And now I'm going to go have some guy yell at me and tell me scary stories and teach me techniques I don't know how to do. And I'm going to have to go, aha, like they do in the movies. Right. Or a lot of self-defense places will tell women, you know, like work out your feminist rage. But, you know, at the end of a workday, I'm too tired to be ragey. I want a cocktail and not a rage cocktail. I just want a cocktail cocktail. Or a lot of other self-defense instructors will sometimes say, like, just imagine it's your child. You're protecting your child. And again, you have to pull all that stuff up out of you. It takes work to do that. It doesn't just come out. That's tough. Mm. Yeah. I didn't do it either. So give us another nice one where we had all those horrible ones. Another movement. One of the moves that we do is called open the door, which I like to think of as opening the door of opportunity. Yes. And really, you've done this too. I know you have. All humans have done this. You've got your arms full of books or groceries. You are walking into your house or your school, someplace, your office, someplace you know very well. You have to kick open a heavy door with your foot. Yeah. You do it. You do it without thinking about it. I do it every day to go into my praxis because it's on a door release. You have to have a button there and the foot goes there. Right, right. (laughs) Right. So you do it and you're good at it. What we don't realize when we do this, that when we walk up to a door we're familiar with, Mm -hmm. our distance is perfect. Even if it's a heavy steel door, we get that door open and our balance is really stable because we've all done this as well. We kick open the door and then we're like, oh, crap, I forgot something in the car. Yeah. So you can reverse direction. Yeah. This is brilliant stuff. In a martial arts context, that took me, I don't know, eight months to learn. But I had already been doing it my whole life and so have you. So open the door is obviously it's a kick in case that's not clear. (laughs) Unless you open doors, like butting them with your head, which is a different thing. So it sounds like your classes are a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, they try to be a lot of fun. We end every class with a dance. We put all the moves that we learn into the most awkward choreography. But nonetheless, it's a choreography, partly because it helps us remember things and partly because it leaves us with a positive association with what we're learning. Sometimes we do get into discussions that are a little hairy, a little intense at times, but I want people to come back. So I want people to leave laughing. That's what you're going to remember. And unfortunately, not everybody lives in Berlin, so they can't actually come to the class. But this is the fabulous thing. You have an app as well. So tell me about that. Yes, we have an app. I chose 10 techniques that I felt were probably the most common that we might run into on the street or if we happen to be living in domestic violence environments. Those are also useful for those. The app is video-based. So there's one video that shows you your everyday move somebody putting their hair behind their ears. Then the next video shows you the application. This is how it works in a defense situation. And then it goes through a short repetition. So you can go through the move yourself. We're working on recruiting what we're calling community coaches, people who are more familiar with those techniques in the app. So when a group of people want to get together and actually practice, if they can't come to a pretty deadly program, there's someone local that can make sure that they're practicing safely, but also effectively. Now, at this point of the program, normally Susie would pop up and tell you all about how to become a supporter. 
So you don't get confused. I'm going to tell you, and then she's going to tell you all over again. One of the most beautiful things about this program is you can become involved in it by becoming a supporter. Now, if you'd like to do that, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall forward slash podcast, and you'll find out how to become a supporter and get all sorts of wonderful benefits. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you are a member of our supporters club, you can send a letter in that I will discuss with my guests, my witness. And this has come in for us, Susie. My husband left me two weeks ago after 18 months of marriage and five years together. I've had a lot of financial stress recently and serious illness and some trouble with my nearly adult children. My husband has become more and more impatient and angry as the year has worn on and has at times been aggressive and violent towards my boys and verbally aggressive towards myself. He is oppositional to everything I suggest and disagrees with most things I say. He says I don't give him enough attention and seems jealous of my children, who actually get very little attention, being mostly self-sufficient. He calls them molly-coddled mother's boys and says they should get out and earn a wage. They're in school and university. He used to be so gentle and kind and we can't even talk for five minutes without it spiralling upwards. I feel I can't say anything if he's going to dislike it. I can't be angry about anything or dislike anyone he likes or any of his actions without him feeling hugely upset and rejected, which leads to him being angry. He doesn't listen at all or responds either aggressively or immediately disagrees or by giving up. Well, what's the point? And we're never going to work. He was abandoned by his mother as a child and had a pretty awful time after that, but is now living with her and won't hear a word against her. I had an abusive childhood too, with an alcoholic but loving father and a horrible mother who seems to despise me. So we're both super sensitive creatures. Any thoughts, Susie? Hmm. Yes. They haven't been married for very long, but they've been together for five years, which also isn't all that long. It feels to me that the author of this letter has entered into a relationship that has quickly escalated into being very abusive. I'm, I'm particularly concerned about his behavior towards her sons. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think would eventually transfer. That's what to I'm her. saying. I mean, this is a big red flag, isn't it? Right. But I think also the red flag is the he used to be so sweet and now I can't say anything, which is pretty classic abusive behavior to kind of seduce someone in with an, a very idealized relationship and then flipping the switch. Have you ever been in a relationship like that yourself? I have, unfortunately. What I've learned about those relationships is that before the physical abuse comes, there's a level of emotional abuse that's a lot like brainwashing. So by the time the physical abuse comes, your defense systems are so broken down that you believe a really shifted version of reality. That version usually says by the abuser that when I'm hurting you, it's because I love you. It's my way of communicating with you because maybe I'm jealous or this or that or the other thing, or I'm frustrated. I'm trying to connect. 
I hurt you, but also you're the only person who can relieve me of the pain that I'm feeling. Love and hate together. Well, I think it's that certain people who only recognize love in the form of anger and violence. And that's usually the perpetrators rather than the victims. Yeah. I think it's interesting you saying that because she has an alcoholic father, mm. and but she has to tell us that he was really loving as well. And so bad behavior and loving sort of all mixed in together is something she's had from a very young age, really, isn't it? Right. Right. And it may be something that she recognizes. Yeah. Someone said to me when I was in a relationship like that, love for you is very difficult, isn't it? Like that's my definition of love. And that that was one of the first things that made me realize, oh, something's wrong here. I need to get out of this relationship because love shouldn't be that difficult. So it really is a case of thank goodness he's gone back to his mother and keep him at arm's length is, I think, what you're saying. I'm saying, yeah, definitely. I think this is a cycle that could continue forever until violence has escalated to the point where someone's life is truly in danger. And I don't think that that's not always necessary for us. And hopefully we can move on before that. That's hard, though, when you're in it. And I've sort of got a question for you to ask yourself next time he's sort of coming back and you're thinking, you know, he's come around for a cup of coffee and you're thinking this is sort of quite nice. Maybe we could make this work. You need to ask yourself, what will be different this time? It's a really powerful question. What will be different this time? Because actually, if you're honest with yourself, nothing is going to be different this time. Even if he says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, he can do this and that without coming back into the relationship. So if he's going to get therapy, he's going to do this, let him do that. You don't have to act until you know something is going to be different this time. And actually, often, if somebody's not truly prepared to look at themselves, and I don't think he is, the answer is going to be nothing is going to be different. But what could you do differently? Right. Which is probably quite a lot. And if you are a super sensitive creature, I think you need to look after yourself. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that if you're aware enough that you're very sensitive, then your priority is protecting yourself, not only physically, but also emotionally. And also your children as well. Of course. Yeah. I think those repercussions over a long period of time will manifest in behavior in the children later. And we don't want to cause generational trauma, legacy trauma in people that just happen to be there and are absorbing something by osmosis, it's also not fair to them. So in this program, I invite you on here as a witness to what makes life meaningful. What makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful? That is something that changes over time. I would say at this stage in my life, what makes it meaningful is sharing sharing my experiences, sharing my knowledge, sharing my skills, but also sharing a moment, sharing a laugh, sharing love, sharing a meal. Sharing time on a podcast. Sharing time on a podcast, but also sometimes just sharing myself with the air around me, the universe, the birds and the trees, and especially sharing knowledge. I feel that that's something that makes really life meaningful to me, even in small ways. You know, when you walk into a pub and you're new in the area and somebody says, oh, there's a really good place to get burgers. I find this so beautiful. We all do this as humans in these really small ways. 
you were expecting one sort of life and suddenly in those 15 minutes it disappeared mm-hmm. and you've got an entirely different kind of life. So we've had the darkness and I think the things that you're doing are really wonderful. Thank you. Does actually turning darkness into light bring meaning into your life? Hmm, that's a good question. That is a hard question for me to answer, to be really honest, because it's just something that I do. It's something that I do with everything. It's not so much being Pollyannish or naively optimistic. It's for me, there's always two sides and you can always make a choice. You can take what you have and turn that into something new that's hopefully useful to you. Or you can take what you have and turn it into something hurtful. Doors close to you by this trauma, but yet actually you have opened other doors, which is sort of really rather wonderful. I've opened the door with yeah, my <laughs> with your foot. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned from my experience is that you really do create your own life. And I know that I say this from a place of extreme privilege. You know, I'm not in the Democratic Republic of Congo as a woman trying to create my own life. But I do believe that if you are in a place of privilege and you can create your own life, then you owe it to yourself and the world to do that. My definition of that is not to hurt other people while I'm doing that as best I can. If you'd like to find out about Susie's work, we've got all the details in the show notes, but you have a website, so tell us how we find that. PrettyDeadlySelfDefense.com And if you'd like to find out more about becoming a supporter, please do go and visit our website, because if you do become a supporter, you get the bonus material, because now I'm going to say goodbye to Susie, but in the supporters club, she's going to tell me the three things that she knows to be true. But Susie, thank you very much. It's been it's been a wonderful journey. Thank you, Andrew. I've really enjoyed being here. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.